0: Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for our podcast and the following message comes from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. MorganStanley.com.
1: With Memorial Day weekend coming up, we're thinking about sacrifice, the bonds that form between people who literally go through war together and how it affects those on the battlefield and back home. It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Camila Kashani. Our first story comes from Gina Gear, who was a switchboard operator in the Army Signal Corps, stationed in Germany during the first Gulf War. That's where she met Army Specialist Jody Walls, who played trumpet in the Army Band. At StoryCorps, Gina told their 22-year-old son, Ryan, about how Jody stood out to her in a sea of soldiers.
2: What made him different than other men in the military?
1: Oh, he's definitely different. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he had a sense of duty about his job, but on the other hand, didn't care. He was quick-witted. And I remember he told me that he was in formation, and the general comes by, gets to your dad, and he says, Soldier? Looks like you got grass on your boots. And your dad says, it's camouflage, sir. (laughs) He was so charming and so confident and so just kind, actually. And I remember once in a while the band would let me ride the bus with them. And I was sitting next to him and he said, I want you to listen to this. And it was the slow version of Chuck Mangione's Feels So Good. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm going to play that at my wedding. And I said, well, whoever you get married to is going to be so lucky. (laughs) I know it sounds corny. (laughs) It's the
2: worst thing I've ever heard. I
3: know. But anyway, and then when we got married, he played that song at our wedding. And it was so romantic. And it's Mm. one of my favorite memories. What do
2: you think he liked about performing?
3: He liked playing high notes.
2: I have this image of this older, heavier weight guy just like walking up in front of the stage like he owns the place, putting the trumpet to his face and just blowing as hard as he can with his eyes closed. And he'd get done and he'd be just so ecstatic.
3: Yeah. And he loved playing for Memorial Day, you know, when they would go around the cemeteries. Mm -hmm. And he felt that it was necessary to do that, to pay tribute to these people. He was honored to do it. The military, sacrifice, service, and playing
1: taps. He took that job seriously. Yeah. Eventually, they both moved back to the U.S. They left active duty, and they had Ryan and his brother. And then things started to take a turn. I think what
3: he had in the military, he didn't have it. In civilian life anymore, a greater good like whatever scaffold he had been standing on started to crumble, and he didn't have a way to either build a new identity for himself
2: mm-hmm.
3: or rebuild what he had because he couldn't ever go back. And then he started to drink more and more and more.
2: And it, it wasn't that he was like violent when he was drunk either, no, it was no, he was just. Drunk.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't stay in the relationship anymore because mm. my goal was to protect you guys. I remember at some point I did leave him a note and I thanked him. I thanked him for those years that were good times. and I wanted to thank him for allowing me to raise you guys. I think on some level he knew that it was
2: better,
0: Mm.
3: that you were with me. And I think he knew. Well, he told me. He told you that?
2: Yeah. I could tell it was really bothering him. But it was like he was admitting that he wasn't good enough for his kids or something.
1: Ryan and his dad had a tense and complicated relationship, but one of the few things they had in common was music. When Ryan joined the school band, he had to choose an instrument. The family was tight on money, so they decided he should play one of his dad's extra trumpets. But it wasn't the bridge to a relationship
3: that
2: you would think it would be. I would play, and he's like, you can't play very high. like, (laughs) oh, thanks for that like in seventh grade, but you know. (laughs) So as I started becoming my own person, it felt like he didn't make it a priority to reach out or connect to me. And that was pretty hurtful. I remember in high school, I would invite him over to pep band or something. Mm -hmm. And then he'd show up with like whiskey in his breath. And I'd be like, oh my God, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd go into his performance mode and clapping my band director on the back and being a bombastic, likable guy. Right, right. Which is kind of, in public, the only mode he had.
3: Right. He wasn't the superhero and he wasn't the villain. He was just complicated.
2: Yeah. And I was coming to terms with, okay, well, that's the relationship I'm going to have with him.
1: A few years after Ryan graduated from high school, his dad died from COVID. And while they were planning his military funeral, Ryan had a decision to make. I think it was your idea
3: to play taps,
1: right, at his funeral?
2: Yeah. I wanted to play taps because he would have wanted me to play taps. I think mostly what was going through my mind at my dad's funeral was, oh my God, I haven't played it yet, and it's also emotional. Yeah. His old commander, Dan, he was right there by me. And Dan was a longtime trumpet player, too. And right before... I got up to do that. He was like, just uh, treat it like a job. Just do it. And then you think about it later.
3: But you didn't ever waver on whether to do it or not.
2: Yeah. Well, when you play taps, you're showing them respect. But you're also letting them know that we're still thinking about you. We still appreciate your service. We still appreciate what you did. And you're still allowed to to rest, hmm. you know, peacefully.
3: I think that is a testament to your strength and your character. That despite flaws that he had, we can set that aside, making sure that he was honored and respected. Hmm. And to have that come from his son, he would have taken pride in that.
1: was Gina Gear and Ryan Walls, remembering Army Sergeant First Class Jody Walls, a Desert Storm veteran and a member of the Honor Guard. He retired in 2019. After the break, how a Vietnam veteran spent his post-service years honoring the ones who died. Stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps, and this message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru. The 2022 Subaru Crosstrek is equipped with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive with up to 34 MPG that will take you wherever and as far as you want to go. Plus, it offers a 2.5-liter Subaru Boxer engine that delivers 182 horsepower for even more adventure. Like any Subaru, the Crosstrek is durable, dependable, and built for the long haul. Love is out there. Find it in a Subaru Crosstrek.
1: When Jury Felton came back from serving in Vietnam, he dealt with, in his words, bitterness and hatred from folks who didn't agree with the war.
0: I was not welcome back to the States. We were told, leave in the military. Do not wear your uniform. One lady called me a baby killer. Then in
1: 1982, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall went up in Washington, D.C. It's engraved with the names of the service members who died in the war. Over 58,000 and jury decided to go see it. He remembered that day with his friend, Rick Weidman.
0: Going to the wall, I had mixed feelings. But as we were walking about, people would leave things all over the wall. Anyone could leave something. No one could recognize certain objects there, so I pointed them out. One of the things I immediately recognized was the military hospital pajamas, because I wore them a long time. So we decided that we were going to make this a collection. And I was asked to come in and assist in setting all this up.
4: They created the job around you. So it's not that you chose to work at the memorial, but it chose you?
0: It chose me. I really do think that it chose me. There were about 8 million Vietnam-era veterans. And out of that number, I, for some reason, was the one chosen for this. I don't know why, but I've often thought about that.
1: Drew was the first curator for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection. He helped identify and care for the thousands of objects that were left at the wall.
4: What was it that kept you coming back?
0: During Vietnam, and I very seldom to speak of this, we had walked into an ambush, and one of my friends had been killed, and I stopped to look at his body. And my sergeant came up to me and said, We have to keep moving forward. That's why we have medics. The medic will get them. I had to go against everything I've learned growing up as regards to having feelings for people. In order to survive, I had to learn to detach. Unfortunately, not everyone has learned to reconnect.
4: You know, there's nothing you can do to help any one of those guys. The only thing you can do is help to understand them better. And leave that as a legacy so they're not forgotten. I don't understand how you do it, Dury. Your strength is what it always has knocked me
0: over. You're the man. No, Rick, you are. Thank you. Thank you for being my friend.
1: That's Jerry Felton and his friend Rick Weidman. Dury spent 28 years working with the memorial and its collection and retired in 2014. It's been six years since Jerry recorded with us, and I had a few more questions for him about the items people were leaving at the wall. So I called him up. What was happening before you started, like, collecting them and curating them? Like, they were just outside sitting in the weather? Would they get damaged? Like, would people steal from it?
4: All of the above. And we started noticing that there were things being left for people's birthdays. Oh, wow. Then we start seeing things like diplomas saying, this is for you, Dad.
1: Is there anything that you remember that really sticks out to you?
4: Yeah. um, There was a manila envelope on the front. It was Dury You Will Understand. It was this person's war diary.
1: And they left it at the wall?
4: Left it at the wall. I've never met this person.
1: What do you think they meant by that?
4: He was speaking to me. It was his experience in Vietnam. I'm a combat veteran Vietnam. You have to understand everything that was going on. It was a difficult time to be a veteran.
1: So does leaving stuff at the wall, you think, give people some sense of closure?
4: Some sense of closure. But I could tell you a lot of times there aren't any names as to whom they're referencing. I was seeing things like coming from the Corps Medics. I wonder if I did enough to save your life. This other person is saying, Doc, because of you, I'm alive." It's a shame that these people will probably never meet, so there will never be closure.
1: Do you feel like the work that you were doing at the memorial wall gave you a sense of closure?
4: Oh, man. It wasn't, would it be called closure? Maybe I say it gives me a sense of worth, sense of value.
1: So now that you're retired, if people are at the wall in another 20 years, where they're looking at the artifacts at the Memorial Museum, what do you want them to remember from all of it?
4: The up close and personal meaning of this, it was being curated by the public. The public was saying, for whatever reason, this is important to me. In the past, history was written from the top down. This is really history being written by the common person.
1: That's all for this episode of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by Jay Bourne and me and edited by Jasmine Morris, who's our executive editor. Eleanor Vasily is our lead producer. Our technical director is Jarrett Floyd. Our fact checker is Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to John White. To see what music we use in the episode, go to storycorps.org, where you can also check out original artwork by Lynn Lucien. For the StoryCorps podcast, I'm Camila Kashani. Catch you next week. This podcast is brought to you by supporters of StoryCorps, an independently funded nonprofit organization, and is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.